0: Welcome to this message from City Bible Church in Portland, Oregon. City Bible Church is a vibrant community of people with one common desire to experience God, enjoy people, and celebrate life. Pastor Frank asked me to come and speak with you for a few minutes. A little bit about youth ministry. It's not very often that we get to talk about uh, youth ministry and how our church views youth ministry, how we view young people. He asked me to come and share this morning, and what I'd like to do is uh, read a portion of scripture to you that really just illustrates the spirit that we want to have in youth ministry and the attitude that we have towards young people as a church. And I think this is very important because there are a lot of different kinds of youth ministries today. There's a lot of people doing a lot of different things. And I think it's important that you learn uh, what we believe. We actually have written out our entire youth ministry model. Uh, We've written it out, and you can read it online here in a couple of weeks. Uh, and all of our core values. You can also pick them up. Well, we're going to put them out here in, in the back in a few weeks. All the moms and dads can take them, and you can read what we believe about youth ministry and how our youth ministries are structured. We've done that for you. But I want to talk about just the spirit this morning, the spirit of of, of youth ministry to us at City Bible Church. Turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 14. I did a portion of this at camp. I'll do something maybe a little different this morning. But First uh, Samuel chapter 14, we'll start in verse 1 and read. It says, one day... Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man bearing his armor, He said, Come and let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father, Saul. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah under the pomegranate tree in Migron. And with him were about 600 men, among whom were Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. And he was the son of Ichabod's brother, Ahedab, son of Phineas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. So all of that to say that he was a priest. No one was aware that Jonathan had left, and on each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross through and reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One cliff was called Bozes, and the other was called Sina. One cliff stood to the north towards Michmash, and the other towards the south, towards Geba. And Jonathan said to the young armor-bearer, he said, "'Come, and let's go over to to the outpost of the uncircumcised fellows, and perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf.'" Now this is important because Jonathan here is speaking to a young man who's probably a teenager, late teens, early 20s, and um, what isn't said in, in this portion of Scripture is that up in the field are literally thousands of soldiers on horses and chariots that want to kill them. And so Jonathan gets excited for some reason, and he says, "Hey, young man, he says, "How about this? Why don't you and I? Why don't you and I go up to, the, uh, to all those fellows up there in the field, and let's take them on by ourselves?" And the young, <laughs> thank you. And the young man, the young man looked up at him and had an interesting answer. But he says, "No, let, let's just go up there and let's take them all on ourselves." And uh, there's a reason why Jonathan felt that he could do that, and I'll talk about it here in, in just a minute. So he said, "Come on, let's go over to those uncircumcised fellows, and perhaps the Lord will uh, act on our behalf." Now, if you're a young man getting ready to face thousands of, of soldiers by yourself, perhaps it's not the word maybe you want to hear. But he says, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, the young armor bearer said. He says, go ahead because I'm with you in my heart and my soul. And Jonathan said, come then, we will cross over towards the men and let them see us. And if they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we'll climb up. Because that is going to be the sign to us that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Now this poor young man, first he, he got to go fight him. And now he runs out in the middle of the field and to everyone and, and just says, here I am, to be shot by arrows or whatever. And he says, uh, the Philistine said, look, the Philistines, the Hebrews, uh, are now crawling out of the holes from where they were hiding And the men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer and they said, why don't you come up here to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, well, let's go climb up after me because the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up using his hands and his feet with his armor bearer behind him. And in that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in the area of about a half an acre. And then panic struck the whole army and the enemy's camp and the field and those in the outposts and the raiding parties. And then there was an earthquake and the ground shook. And I like this part. And it was a panic sent by God. This gives you the picture that really God was in the middle of it the whole time. But in in this uh, portion of Scripture, in this portion of Scripture, the context to me is, is very important and very exciting. Here you have Jonathan, who's the son of King Saul. And King Saul is hiding over in the rocks with all of his armor, uh, all of his, his army. As a matter of fact, in chapter 13, it says that Saul was afraid for his life. He'd lost a battle. He had no weapons. As a matter of fact, scripture tells us that there were only two swords left in the entire army of Israel. King Saul had one and Jonathan had the other. All they had were two swords. And so here's King Saul hiding over in the rocks from the Philistines And what had happened was that Samuel the prophet, after they'd lost this battle, he said to King Saul, he said, Saul, listen, he says, this is what you've got to do. I want you to wait for me. I don't want you to, to, to burn any sacrifices. I want you to obey the word of the Lord. Wait for me. Everything's going to be okay. And then I'll be back in a little while. Well, in the meantime, they're hiding in the rocks. They get scared that the enemy is going to come in and attack them in the rocks where they stand. And so what happens is, is he decides to not listen to the word of the Lord. And he starts to, to burn some some sacrifices and do some different things. And then all of a sudden Saul comes or Samuel comes back and says, Saul, what have you done? Come on, this is important. He says, what have you done? He says, well, you said you were coming back and you were late. We lost the last battle and I had to do something. And Samuel says, oh, Saul, you were so foolish because now your kingdom must be taken away from you. And it has been given to one who has a heart after God's. And you know who that is, right? Samuel, Samuel says, he says, now your kingdom has to be taken away from you. And I have to, God's going to give it to someone who's after his own heart. And so we have David brought into the story. He hasn't been revealed yet. So you have David who's somewhere out here. You have Saul who's hiding over here in the rocks and you have Jonathan in the middle trying to decide what kind of man and soldier that he's going to be. And then all of a sudden he gets an idea. And you know, you realize why Jonathan and David were such good friends when they met. Because they, they both kind of talked the same, they had the same spirit, you know what I mean? There's a million soldiers, we have no weapons, let's go kill them, it's not a big deal, you know, God's going to show up, you know. They had the same spirit, they even, you even recognize the language here when he says, oh those uncircumcised Philistines, here we come. And you know, you, you think of David when he fights Goliath, the uncircumcised Philistine, how dare you curse the living God, you know. So you understand why they became good friends. So Jonathan is here, and there was something about Jonathan in his heart that got him to travel through two treacherous rock formations across a field up into an area where he would face thousands of soldiers all by himself. Now, what in the world would give uh, this young soldier the idea that he could do this all alone? Well, I think the key is when he calls him an uncircumcised Philistine because he understood that Jonathan was under the covenant. Jonathan and Israel, Israel's families, Israel's children were under the covenant of God. Therefore, they were recipients of the promises of God. And if God said it, it's true. If he said he's going to do it, he's going to do it. It doesn't matter if there's one of you. It doesn't matter if there's 10,000 of you. If God said it, it's going to happen. And what God was looking for is someone after his own heart, someone who would take God at his word and rush into the fray with his single sword and take on an entire army. Now I'm telling you this because when we think about youth ministry today, now keep in mind, I'm a youth pastor. I've been doing this for a little while. We have to have in our culture and our generation, we have to have a Jonathan spirit and not a Saul spirit. We can't be hiding over in the rocks, afraid that the enemy is going to come by and pick us off and and pick off our children one by one. We can't live a defensive life. We have to live an offensive life. And the only way that you can live an offensive life when it comes to your family and children is if you really believe that God is faithful. Come on, everybody. God is faithful. Mill Plain 217. God is faithful. And every one of his promises are true. Every single one of them. It was the covenant of God that gave him that. And I love the story because he runs in, you know, and you get this picture of unity because you have the young man and, uh, and Jonathan and the young man looks up at Jonathan and he says, he says, he says, I'm with you in my heart and in my soul. with my heart, my soul, and I think that his unity, his unity with his leaders, the understanding that they had about what the covenant was, gave them strength. If he would have said, I don't believe you, I don't trust you, I'm going back the other way, I'm not sure if Jonathan would have been able to pull it off. And so you see on this team a kind of unity. And our goal in City Bible Church is that we develop a kind of unity and understanding that we're not going into this alone. This is not about Pastor Doug or Pastor Donna. This is about City Bible Church with great faith, with great anointing and great belief that every child in this church is going to serve God come on marry the right person multi-generational the blessing of God because we're under the covenant are you there this morning come on are you there this morning now and so you know he, he gets out of the rocks there was something that about the family about Israel about Israel's children the armies of God that got him out of the rocks and I've been asking myself lately what is it that gets me out of the rocks what is it for all these years that really gets me up and wants to, wants to just, you know, take it to the devil and lead the next generation still? Um, I realized this week, uh, this last week that I've actually, I actually preached to my first group of teenagers 17 years ago this month, 17 years ago. And I realized I've been doing this a long time now, 17 years ago, that was pre Donna Wager. So yes, there was a ministry before Donna Wager. I had a life before I married my beautiful. A life before I married my beautiful wife. It was before City Bible Church because I was just coming into the church. It was before Portland Bible College. You know, I hadn't gone to Portland Bible College yet, and I wish I would have because I remember the first night I spoke to those five teenagers, and I don't think anything I said was biblical. Okay, <laughs> so God had it all planned out. It was before uh, youth ministry proper, but as I go through the years now, 13 years full-time, 17 years uh, total, and I look at my life, I think about what it is that still gets me up in the morning and and makes me want to go fight and, and, and take it to the next level. And it's not the things that some people see, I believe. Because youth ministry is not just, youth ministry is not what you see from the outside. It's really not. All the games and all the fun. And we do have a lot of fun. Do you think youth ministry should be fun, everyone? It is. I have I have done the fun stuff. Well, whether you think this is fun. I've sold, if you can imagine, over 15 years now uh, in youth ministry, 13 years full time. I've sold everything there is to sell to raise money. I've sold hot dogs, pizzas, giant sausages. I've sold candy bars. How many of you here have ever... Sold candy bars. Moms and dads, all three campuses. You know the candy bars I'm talking about, right? The ones that come in the box, the white box. And you have to prepay for the candy bars. And you're, you're, you're not even concerned for the camp or the event. You just want to get rid of those candy bars. Because you're stuck with them after it's all over. And so you know what you do, right? you got the candy bars. And your, your child doesn't sell all the candy bars. So you stick them in the closet for a year. And then you sell them next year as white chocolate. Because they've turned <laughs> at a discount. Because just get them out. i sold it. We've done car washes. I have done more miles in a 15-passenger van than anyone should be allowed to to live in life in a van. All over the country in 15-passenger vans, we have smashed them into walls. Come on. We have tried to park them in parking garages that were too low and smashed in the roof. We have I, for for years. I thought that youth ministry meant that all the only car you were allowed to drive was a 15 passenger van. I drove a 15 passenger van when you could still put 21 people in them. Can I hear an amen? Come on, that doesn't make Robert very happy, but but we did. That's, that's the life. And, and over the years, it's not all the fun things, the lock-ins, the all-night prayer meetings, you know, the prayer meetings where you're locked in a room from seven in the evening till seven in the morning. And at midnight, everybody goes to the top of Rocky Butte and prays over the city. And you come down and then you, you put 200 kids in buses and everyone goes to Denny's. I have a relationship with Denny's that you would not understand. It's true, I, I do, because it's the only place you can feed 200 teenagers for like 90 bucks, come on. <laughs> and you, you go through all of, all of these events and all of the years, uh, You know, it's not about the things that we see on the outside because at the inside there's something taking place. At the inside of youth ministry, there's something happening that you're not going to see from the outside. And these are the things that we believe that we're called to fight for as a church and as a leadership. If you want to see uh, those things in action, you have to come to the all-night prayer meeting and you have to uh, see what's going on uh, between a youth pastor in the church and, and little Johnny at about, he's 15 years old, at about three in the morning when Johnny finally has gone through a couple of pizzas, a two liter of, of root beer and a service and now he's opening up at three in the morning and he's talking about his, his young life and what he wants to do and where he wants to go. He's talking about his mom and dad and his struggles with his father and we're praying for him and laying hands on him. If you want to see those things in action, you have to come at about 9.30 on a Wednesday night here and you'll see uh, the youth pastor's wives, whether it's Cindy or Donna or Laura, uh, one of them, you'll, you'll see them with three or four girls lined up after the service, after the skits and after the illustrations. And you'll see them uh, engaged in conversations that have nothing to do with what we would see from the outside. I'm struggling, I'm, I'm insecure, I'm in a relationship and, and I, I, my mom and dad don't agree with it and I don't know how to, how to handle this or or I, I, I feel like I'm worthless and, and I, or I have an eating disorder. And you'll, you'll watch the tears as they take place at the altar. If you want to know what is at the heart of youth ministry, you have to go a little deeper than just looking at the outside and all the fun stuff because I'm smarter than I used to be, all the fun stuff is is still there, but I've realized that at the middle of it at this season, it's time to give ourselves to those things that really, really matter and fight for them as we go along in our journey. See, you saw the picture up here on the blob, right? You know what the blob is? See, I've, I've done this long enough now to where I realize I don't heal as fast as I used to, you know? And there's a young man down here, his name is Trent. Trent is six foot seven, he weighs 290 pounds. And Trent wanted to, Trent wanted to blob me. He wanted to put me on one end of a large inner tube. And he jumps on this end. And when he jumps on this end, I fly through the air and I land in prayer and intercession, hopefully, not injuring my body. See, I've learned, I've learned a little bit. Like, I have guys that work for me now, so I make Ben go on the blob. Amen. I make Poncho go on the blob or a seam. In the middle of all of it still, whether it's me, whether it's them, listen, there's something in the middle of it. And I want to talk about those things just for a few minutes. We won't get through them all today, but let me give you a few things that we think are still worth fighting for. And at the end of the day, this is what gets us out of the rocks. Number one is the Bible tells us very clearly that we're supposed to fight for young people. As a matter of fact, Jesus talks about it several times in the New Testament. and You can find it all through the Bible. We believe that God's hand is on our young people. Pause there's some noise here's some noise on that one some amens we believe that God's hand is on our young people as a matter of fact Jesus talks about it so clearly he says let them come unto me Jesus said said, if any of you mess with one of these little ones you might as well tie a rock around your ankle go out into the middle of the ocean and throw yourself over the side so no one can find you that's a pretty significant threat when it's coming from Yahweh come on You know, and you can find you anyways. He's trying to make a point. (laughs) Listen, he... uh ministering to young people is not just something that what we do because we need to have another event, another party, another outreach. We do it because it's scriptural. And we believe that God's hand is on young people today. We believe that when you sow into the young people of the church, you're sowing into the future of the church. When you sow into young people, you're sowing into future families. You're sowing into future generations. This is a multi-generational church. This is not a one-generation church. Here this morning, there are actually families, and after the first service, several of the grandmas came up and, and great-grandmas came up and gave me a hug. But there are families here that are not just four generations, but five generations deep in this church, which is amazing to me. You don't see that very often. But what you realize, when you're in a church like this, you realize that youth ministry is not about you. It's not about me. It, it really is the idea that I'm simply a steward over it in the years that I have the privilege to be here. I'm a steward over it. It changes everything. Um, I realize that the vision that was set in this church for young people was not set by me. I simply get to build on it. And I also understand that I'm going to spend all my years in youth ministry and I'm going to build something out in in a vision. I'm going to have a vision for youth ministry with the leaders of the church. And that entire vision is simply the foundation for those that are to come. That we're building for the future. If you're a mom and you're a dad, come on, your dream and your desire is for your children to be happier, healthier, to do more, to preach more, to reach more nations, to worship, to write more songs. We want them to go farther than we did. Can I hear an amen? Are you there? And so we realize that our whole vision is just the next generation's foundation. But we have a heart in City Bible Church. Young people, for young people, they get us out of the rocks. We'll fight from the kid in the nursery all the way to the young adult, the 25, 30-year-old. We want to see them uh, as a young person coming through the church, growing up, being educated, being equipped, getting married, having babies, and become reproducing members of the body of Christ. That's how you look at youth ministry. Can I hear an amen? So we believe in young people. Another one here, a second one would be this. Well, we believe that we need to have a, a greater commitment... To develop a hunger for the Bible in the next generation. It's the Bible. The Bible gets us pretty fired up at times because we understand the power of Scripture in young people's lives. If you learn it when you're young, you're gonna you're gonna do a little better when you're older. And there is an attack on this generation uh, in the scripture and in the word. I think there's a lot of reasons for it. I think one of the reasons would be that we live in a in a generation that doesn't really enjoy reading. We have the highest illiteracy rate in history. Um, I think that there are many philosophies and theologies out there, humanism, different things in our school systems that would try to keep us. The, the culture wants to use every tool that it has to keep us out of Scripture. But we understand that at the end of the day, Second Timothy chapter two verses eight through ten tells us that even though we may be imprisoned or chained, the Word of God—now listen to this—is not chained. The word of God is the only thing in our lives that is not chained and cannot be imprisoned. And at the end of the day, we want our young people to know this. When you're married... When you're 20, 25, 30, 35 and you have your own kids, at the end of the day regardless of what prison you may be in physically regardless of what you're going through, our young people need to know the place to turn is the Bible. It's the truth. It's the thing that cannot be changed or stopped. People have been trying to stop it for thousands of years and it just grows and gets bigger and sweeps across the planet and revival takes place. And that's another thing I believe about this generation. There are so many books and statistics that you can read about our kids They're highest taxes and they got this problem and one in this and one in eight will have this and, and you know as a, as a pastor you have to look at that and you have to say okay well if that's true then what does the Bible say the Bible says that the first shall be and the last shall be that means that our young people have a great testimony and God's going to use them in greater ways than he's used any other generation if they've if they got all these problems, well, praise the Lord. we got a great testimony, and let's take it to the devil. Let's preach the gospel and make something happen. But we need, you know, I told young people this week at, at camp, I use this illustration because it always boggles my mind, you know, at the end of camp when we have one, two, or three boxes filled with Bibles. And some of you bought those Bibles for your kids. As a matter of fact, I happen to know that some of you bought those Bibles for your kids right before camp. And your child left them at camp. And I have that Bible. So you tell your child to come get it. I have it. But what must frustrate you at times is that you even forked out 50 bucks and got them the one with the gold leaf on the side. And you paid 32 cents per letter to put their name on the front. And not just their first name. You did their whole name. You did their first long name, their middle name, and the last name. You did it all. It cost you like 25 bucks just in letters. And they leave the Bible at camp. Well, I was, I was thinking about this. How many young people today lose their cell phones? None. And if they do, whose, whose fault is it? Mom and dad's. Well, you frustrated me and I lost my cell phone. They don't lose their cell phone. You know, it still boggles my mind actually that young people have cell phones because when I was growing up, people didn't have cell phones. Only cell phones they were. They were like you had to carry them, you know, like in a, in a big suitcase. You remember the ones? And, and you'd see people at a restaurant and they would have to unzip it or unclip the top and then they pick up and it's still attached to a cord and it has a rotary dial. <laughs> click, 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 <laughs> That's the cell phones I remember. And then, and then after a while, you hung on to those cell phones and you gave them away at Christmas as white elephant gifts. Come on, you know. And uh, those are cell phones. So I still can't believe that teenagers have them. But if they do, they don't lose them. Why? Because their text messaging, you know, their, their, their friends are on there. It's their community. It's their communication. It's their relationship. It's their, their whole world revolves around it. And when young people have something that their world revolves around, it means a lot to them. They're going to lose their clothes. They're going to lose their, they won't lose their clothes if they bought it. If you bought it, they'll lose it. But if they bought it, they won't lose it. But they won't lose their cell phone. But why is it they lose their Bibles? It's because we have a condition, I believe, in our culture today. What gets us out of the rocks to fight and to preach and to teach is we want young people to understand that their communication, their relationship, their community, their power, their strength, their future, their understanding, their revelation, their knowledge, their mind, their heart, everything revolves around this book called the Bible that came from God and is the key to life. And we have to fight for it in our generation and not water it down and not make it something. Anybody makes it whatever you want. You pick out any ver- you want little johnny and then come in and see me and tell me that that i'm wrong because you found a verse no i've read the whole bible and i know what that verse means people are picking and choosing according to their feelings and the tacos they had last night we need young people to read the bible for all it's worth come on we're gonna fight for the bible here's one more here's one more tonight the biblical family the biblical family of course you understand our journey but I had a revelation during those days, during the Defense of marriage coalition, following Pastor Frank and the leaders here, Tim Nash, Mike White, and all the rest. But I had a revelation, a firsthand revelation, of how significant the war is on the family. And I have to believe, I have to believe with all my heart, that God is going to show up and there will be a tremor, a quake, a panic along the way. When, whenever, I have to believe for my kids that if the enemy comes after their marriages or their children, that God's going to send a panic by God and the enemy's going to flee. Because our children in our church are going to be married. They're going to marry the right person. They're going to be married their whole life until they go to heaven. And the children's children, the, you know, the blessing of a grandparent is the grandchildren. We have to believe that, that God's hand is on the family, that the family is the cornerstone stone of society. And if we want to be a light in the darkness, then we have to have strong families. I will get out of the rocks to fight for the family. Blob me, blob me, throw me in the pool. I'm going to fight for the family. (laughs) In the middle of all of the stuff going on, we're fighting for the family. Here's one more. A belief that our culture is stronger than the culture of the world. And I believe that we have to to make sure that young people understand that our culture is a strong culture and it's not a weak culture. You know, the world wants people to think the church is weak. You know, people today, the culture today wants young people to think that the church is weak and it's insignificant. And if you're going to be cool and if you're going to be fun, if, if, if you're not going to be bored your whole life, then don't go to church. Well, I have news for everyone today. I realized a long time ago that the church is not boring. Come on. As a matter of fact, there was a philosopher once, his name was... Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard, maybe you're familiar with him, but he actually wrote the first definition for the word boredom. The original definition for that word goes something along these lines. The first definition. He saw a a condition in young people and he wrote this. He said, boredom is, quote, uh, the, the lack of any revelation of God's purpose for your life. Can I say that I got saved in 1989 and I have never been bored? As a matter of fact, I remember boredom As a fond old friend that I hope I run into before I die one more time, I don't know if I will but I'm not bored. And the kingdom of God is supposed to be strong. It's supposed to be faith-filled. Young people need to do things that maybe doesn't make sense in the culture's eyes, but yet we're going to get them up through the rocks and we're going to believe for them. We're going to believe they do great things. Um, We do some things in our youth ministry that people don't understand. If you don't go to church, you don't understand God. Even just our missions trips alone, if you think about it, they're a little crazy. I mean, we have young people saving money all summer to take these trips. And we've taken maybe 20, 25 trips. Since I've been here, and we've gone all over the world, you know, and they're saving money to smuggle, you know, like, hey Johnny, what are you doing this summer? Well, you know, like, like I've been saving my money, you know, and I bought a backpack, you know what I'm saying? So, and it carries my skateboard. It has a strap goes around my skateboard, so I can carry it on the plane. It's really cool, and I'm gonna go to China, and I'm gonna smuggle Bibles across communist borders. You know, and when young people get that kind of a thing, their friends don't under, understand them, see. But that's culture. That's culture. That's the kind of culture, the faith culture, the Jonathan generation culture that we have. You know, and we've, we've done that. And some people listening to this, this, this morning have actually taken those trips. And wherever I go with young people, I run into people, I run into Americans on these trips. And I'll go to some country with a group of teenagers and we've had miracles with the finances and, and, and months of prayer and, and we're ready to go. And we'll go into a coffee shop somewhere. Cause you can always find the Americans at the coffee shop. Come on. So, and, and this actually happened once this young man I met in a, in a South American country. And it's, he said to me, I met him at the coffee shop and I said, Hey, um, so, you're an American? Yeah, you're an American. Yeah, so tell me, what are you doing, you know, way down here in, in South America, around the world? What are you doing? He looked at me and he got this real serious look on his face. And here I've got all these teenagers. And he says, he says Well, I wanted to see something that I have never seen before. I'm looking at the guy, he's like 20 years old, and I'm thinking, Well, you could come to Gresham because I live in Gresham. We got Gresham station. We got Gresham park. We got Powell Boulevard. I mean, if you've never seen it, if that's, if that's all it is, I, I could hook you up right there, man. I said, well, well why else have you come? Why else are, are you way down here in the middle of nowhere? And he looked at me and he says, well, he says, uh, I really just want to find myself. <laughs> are you all alone down here? Yeah. You want to find yourself? Yeah. You're, you're right here. And I I remember slapping him on the shoulder. I said, have you looked in your backpack? You know, he didn't know what to do. (laughs) Maybe you're in your backpack. And then he says to me, he turns to me and he says, he says, well, what are you doing here? You know, here I've got 30 teenagers that have been praying and fasting and, you know, raised like $90,000. And I just looked at him. I said, well, we're here. um, We're here to raise the dead. And he kind of looked at me cross eyed for a minute. He says, he says, What? Yeah, he says, I said, We're here to raise the dead. I said, Now, I don't know if they're going to raise, I, but, but hey, I, I say, Let's make a memory <laughs> and let's give it a shot. And he's looking at me, Raise the dead, heal the sick, sight to the blind, those kind of things. That's why we're here. You know, and I got Johnny and all of his friends lined up. They're like, oh, You know, wanting to pray for everybody in the coffee shop. Now, to me, This is culture. This is a Jonathan generation culture. This is the kind of culture that says, if you understand, young person, your covenant, the promises of God over your life, you can and you will do exploits for the rest of your life. This is the kind of culture that we want to build for the young people in City Bible Church. We want them to be, as the Bible says about David, when the Bible says in the New Testament about about David, that he served the purposes of God, his entire generation. And then he fell asleep and was buried with his fathers. We want them to understand they're called to their generation, just like you and I have been all the days of our life. It's culture. We're a faith-filled culture and we're not going to be sitting over in the rocks with Saul, worried about every every little arrow and thing that's going to come our way and they just come by and pick us off one by one. In this generation, the way things are today, somebody needs to get up, grab an armor bearer, and look at this and say, you know what? It's not about one or ten thousand. God said, "We win." So let's go. It's culture. It's a kind of faith-filled culture that we believe. Culture gets us out of the rocks. I have just a couple of minutes. Let me give you. Uh, uh, let me give you maybe one or two more. The desire for young people to handle the challenges of today. Young people have to handle challenges today. There are quite a few. When I was um, when I was in high school. Uh, in the 80s, back in the 80s, which was, by the way, the greatest decade in the history of the world. Anyway, so the, the 80s um, the '80s were interesting because even though it was some time ago now, I understand things were not the same then. I did not go through what young people are going through today. I honestly believe, I, I really do, I believe it's harder today to be a young person than it was even 20 years ago. But I know this. I know that the Bible says, if I can make a culture statement this morning, the Bible says that in First John, greater is he who is in me. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. And we want young people to be equipped and ready to handle the challenges that they're going to go through in their life. It's very, very important for them to understand. We do that. We help them with everything that you can imagine. Come on on a Wednesday night and check it out. Let me give you one more. We believe that young people are the future of the church. Can I hear an amen? amen? We believe that young people are the future of the church. And we don't just say this, we actually believe it. Because look here at our church now, five generations, generation after the other, we have five generations now that have been involved with leadership that are being born in the church. They are the future of the church. And we live in a day where it is very, very important that we make sure we live our lives in the church the way that we were taught according to scripture. There is an attack on the church today. There really is. And I've learned over the years, now I'm a full-time pastor, I've learned at home to not say things, not to take out my frustration on the church in front of my children. Because if I love the church, my children will love the church. If I love the church, my children will love the church. And so as a pastor, if I come home and I'm, I'm feeling tired or overworked, if I didn't get my date this month with Donna, or maybe in the last two months or, or whatever. And I haven't dated. If I say things in front of my kids, like, well, the church called again and I have to give up another day off or the church called and man, they shortened my, shortened my vacation because there's some revival going on. You know what I'm saying? You know, if I say things, if I say things like that to my children, then my children will begin to have a pattern in their life where they blame the church for things that do not go well and then they grow up and we have a generation today that is growing up with the idea that it's the church's fault so we have to take the church apart and rebuild it in such a way that it works for me and my emotions and my bitterness and that's not how you build the church we today we have this this thing where we deconstruct the church and if you if you've studied literature you'd understand the word deconstruction or deconstructionism the taking apart of language the taking apart devaluing of music and literature and language and you put it together any way that you want, there are no moral absolutes, you put it together anyway, you can't take apart the church, we want our young people, are you with me, I'm almost done, are you there, 217, Mill Plain, Rocky Beauty, are you there, come on, we want our young people to learn how to follow men and women of God who have spent their life putting the church together, not taking it apart. Because what it does is it teaches our young people to be church builders. Not church attackers. Not church complainers. We want them to see in us something that is powerful and wonderful that has to do with the church. There are two camps today, definitely. There's one camp that takes it apart and tries to put it together again according to their emotions. But there's another camp that builds the church. Because we all know the church is not perfect. Come on. But God is And he's living and breathing inside the church. So we want to be church builders for the next generation. They are going to take the church to another level. And we realize that our whole vision, one man's vision is just another man's foundation. And we have got to believe for greater things in the future. That's why we have youth ministry. We're believing, and there's several more, but I'll close here. We're believing we are believing that while during the season while we are stewards, my wife and I and our team, under the leadership of Pastor Frank DiMaggio and the, the elders of this church, our job our job is to serve you, the family. Our job is to equip the young people. We believe that there are still some things that get us out of the rocks to fight. And we'll do it because they're the things that really matter. That's the spirit. The spirit of this youth ministry, this church towards young people, is we want to be Jonathans. The Jonathan generation who doesn't sit, doesn't get defensive, but understands the promises of God because every single one of them are for our kids. Can I hear an amen?